0: Dombey and Son, Chapter 56. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. Dombey and Son by Charles Dickens, Chapter 56. Several people delighted and the game chicken disgusted. The midshipman was all alive. Mr. Toots and Susan had arrived at last. Susan had run upstairs like a young woman bereft of her senses, and Mr Toots and the chicken had gone into the parlour. Oh, my own pretty darling, sweet Miss Floy, cried the nipper, running into Florence's room, to think that it should come to this, and I should find you here, my own dear dove, with nobody to wait upon you and no home to call your own, but never, never will I go away again, Miss Floy, for though I may not gather moss, I'm not a rolling stone, or is my heart a stone, or else it wouldn't burst, as it is bursting now. Oh dear, oh dear Pouring out these words, without the faintest indication of a stop of any sort, Miss Dipper, on her knees, beside her mistress, hugged her close. "'Oh, love!' cried Susan. "'I know all that's past, and I know it all, my tender pet, and I'm a-choking. Give me air.' "'Susan, dear, good Susan!' said Florence. "'Oh, bless her! I that was her little maid when she was a little child, and is she really, really, truly going to be married?' exclaimed Susan, in a burst of pain and pleasure, pride and grief, and heaven knows how many other conflicting feelings.' who told you so said florence oh gracious me that innocentest creature toots returned susan hysterically i knew he must be right my dear because he took on so he's the devotedest and innocentest infant and is my darling pursued susan with another close embrace and burst of tears really really going to be married The mixture of compassion, pleasure, tenderness, protection, and regret with which the nipper constantly recurred to this subject, and at every such once raised her head to look in the young face and kiss it, and then laid her head again upon her mistress's shoulder, caressing her and sobbing, was as womanly and good a thing in its way as ever was seen in the world. "'There, there,' said the soothing voice of Florence presently. "'Now you're quite yourself, dear Susan.' Miss Nipper, sitting down upon the floor, at her mistress's feet, laughing and sobbing, holding her pocket-handkerchief to her eyes with one hand, and patting Diogenes with the other as he licked her face, confessed to being more composed and laughed and cried a little more in proof of it. "'I, I-, I never did see a creature as that Toots,' said Susan, in all my born days, never. "'So kind,' suggested Florence. "'And so comic,' Susan sobbed. "'The way he's been going on inside with me and that disrespectful chicken on the box.' about what susan inquired florence timidly oh about lieutenant walters and captain gills and you my dear miss floy and the silent tomb said susan "'The silent tomb,' repeated Florence. "'He says,' here Susan burst into a violent, hysterical laugh, "'that he'll go down into it now immediately and quite comfortable. But bless your heart, dear Miss Floy, he won't. He's a great deal too happy in seeing other people happy for that. He may not be a Solomon,' pursued the nipper, with her usual volubility. "'Nor do I say he is, but this I do say. A less selfish human creature human nature never knew.' Miss Nipper, being still hysterical, laughed immoderately after making this energetic declaration, and then informed Florence that he was waiting below to see her, which would be a rich repayment for the trouble he had had in his late expedition. Florence entreated Susan to beg of Mr. Toots as a favour that she might have the pleasure of thanking him for his kindness, and Susan in a few moments produced that young gentleman, still very much dishevelled in appearance, and stammering excitedly miss dombey said mr toots to be again permitted to-to gaze at least not to gaze but i don't exactly know what i was going to say but it's of no consequence i have to thank you so often returned florence giving him both her hands with all her innocent gratitude beaming in her face that i have no words left and don't know how to do it "'Miss Dombey,' said Mr. Toots, in an awful voice, "'if it was possible that you could, consistently with your angelic nature, "'curse me, you would, if I may be allowed to say so, "'floor me infinitely less than by these undeserved expressions of kindness. "'Their effect upon me is—' "'But,' said Mr. Toots, abruptly, "'this is a digression, and of no consequence at all.' "'As there seemed to be no means of replying to this, but by thanking him again—' Florence thanked him again. "'I could wish,' said Mr. Toots, "'to take this opportunity, Miss Dombey, if I might, "'of entering into a word of explanation. "'I should have had the pleasure of— "'of returning with Susan at an earlier period, "'but in the first place we didn't know the name of the relation "'to whose house she had gone, "'and in the second, as she had left that relations "'and gone to another at a distance, "'I think that scarcely anything short of the sagacity of the chicken "'would have found her out in the time.' florence was sure of it this however said mr toots is not the point the company of susan has been i assure you miss dombey a consolation and satisfaction to me in my state of mind more easily conceived than described the journey has been its own reward That, however, still is not the point, Miss Dombey. I have before observed that I know I am not what is considered a quick person. I am perfectly aware of that. I don't think anybody could be better acquainted with his own, if it was not too strong an expression, I should say, with the thickness of his own head, than myself. But, Miss Dombey, I do notwithstanding perceive the state of— Of things with lieutenant walters whatever agony that state of things may have caused me which is of no consequence at all i am bound to say that lieutenant walters is a person who appears to be worthy of the blessing that has fallen on his on his brow may he wear it long and appreciate it as a very different and very unworthy individual that it is of no consequence to name would have done that however still is not the point miss dombey captain gills is a friend of mine and during the interval that is now elapsing i believe it would afford captain gills pleasure to see me occasionally coming backwards and forwards here it would afford me pleasure so to come but i cannot forget that i once committed myself fatally at the corner of the square at brighton and if my presence will be in the least degree unpleasant to you i only ask you to name it to me now and assure you that i shall perfectly understand you i shall not consider it at all unkind and shall only be too delighted and happy to be honoured with your confidence mr toots returned florence if you who are so old and true a friend of mine were to stay away from this house now you would make me very unhappy it can never never give me any feeling but pleasure to see you miss dombey said mr toots taking out his pocket-handkerchief if i shed a tear it is a tear of joy it is of no consequence and i am very much obliged to you i may be allowed to remark after what you have so kindly said that it is not my intention to neglect my person any longer florence received this intimation with the prettiest expression of perplexity possible i mean said mr toots that i shall consider it my duty as a fell creature generally until i am claimed by the silent tomb to make the best of myself and to-to to have my boots as brightly polished as-as circumstances will admit of this is the last time miss dombey of my intruding any observation of a private and personal nature i thank you very much indeed if i am not in a general way as sensible as my friends could wish me to be or as i could wish myself i really am upon my word and honour particularly sensible of what is considerate and kind i feel said mr tooths in an impassioned tone as if i could express my feelings at the present moment in a most remarkable manner if-if i could only get a start appearing not to get it after waiting a minute or two to see if it would come "'Mr. Toots took a heavy leave, and went below to seek the captain, whom he found in the shop. "'Captain Gills,' said Mr. Toots, "'what is now to take place between us takes place under the sacred seal of confidence. "'It is the sequel, Captain Gills, of what has taken place between myself and Miss Dombey upstairs.' "'Allow and aloft, eh, my lad?' murmured the captain." "'Exactly so, Captain Gills,' said Mr. Toots, whose fervour of acquiescence was greatly heightened by his entire ignorance of the captain's meaning. "'Miss Dombey, I believe, Captain Gills, is to be shortly united to Lieutenant Walters.' "'Why, aye, my lad! We're all shipmates here. Waller and Sweetheart will be joined together in the house of bondage as soon as the askings is over,' whispered Captain Cuttle in his ear. "'The askings,' Captain Gills, repeated Mr. Toots. "'In the church down yonder,' said the captain, pointing his thumb over his shoulder. "'Oh, yes,' returned Mr. Toots. "'And then,' said the captain, in his hoarse whisper, and tapping Mr. Toots on the chest with the back of his hand, and falling from him with a look of infinite admiration, "'what fallers! "'That there pretty creature, as delicately brought up as a foreign bird, "'goes away upon the roaring main with Waller on a voyage to China!' "'Lord, Captain Gills,' said Mr. Toots. ay nodded the Captain. "'The ship as took him up when he was wrecked in the hurricane that had drove her clean out of her course was a China trader. "'And Walter made the voyage and got into favour, aboard and ashore, being as smart and good a lad as ever stepped. "'And so the supercargo, dying at Canton, he got made, having acted as clerk afore, "'and now he's supercargo aboard another ship, same owner's.' and so you see repeated the captain thoughtfully the pretty creature goes away upon the roaring main with walter on a voyage to china mr toots and captain cuttle heaved a sigh in concert what then said the captain she loves him true he loves her true them as should have loved and tended of her treated of her like the beasts as perish when she cast out of home came here to me and dropped upon them planks her wounded heart was broke. I know it. I, Edward Cuttle, see it. There's naught but true, kind, steady love as can ever piece it up again. If so be I didn't know that, and didn't know as Walter was her true love brother and she his, I'd have these here blue arms and legs chopped off afore I'd let her go. But I know it, and what then? Why then, I say, heaven go with em both, and so it will. Amen.' Captain Gills, said Mr. Toots, let me have the pleasure of shaking hands. You've a way of saying things that gives me an agreeable warmth all up my back. I say amen. You are aware, Captain Gills, that I, too, have adored Miss Dombey. Cheer up, said the captain, laying his hand on Mr. Toots' shoulder. Stand by, boy. It is my intention, Captain Gills returned the spirited Mr. Toots, to cheer up also to stand by as much as possible. When the silent tomb shall yawn, Captain Gills, I shall be ready for burial not before. But not being certain just at present of my power over myself what I wish to say to you, and what I shall take it as a particular favour if you will mention to Lieutenant Walters, is as follows.' "'Is as follows,' echoed the captain. Steady.' "'Miss Dombey's being so inexpressibly kind,' continued Mr. Toots, with watery eyes, "'as to say that my presence is the reverse of disagreeable to her, "'and you and everybody here being no less forbearing and tolerant towards one who—' "'Who certainly,' said Mr. Toots, with momentary dejection, "'would appear to have been born by mistake. "'I shall come backwards and forwards of an evening during the short time we can all be together. "'But what I ask is this.' if at any moment i find that i cannot endure the contemplation of lieutenant walter's bliss and should rush out i hope captain gills that you and he will both consider it as my misfortune and not my fault or the want of inward conflict that you'll feel convinced i bear no malice to any living creature least of all to lieutenant walters himself and that you'll casually remark that i have gone out for a walk or probably to see what o'clock it is by the royal exchange captain gills if you could enter into this arrangement and could answer for lieutenant walters it would be a relief to my feelings that i should think cheap at the sacrifice of a considerable portion of my property my lad returned the captain say no more "'There ain't a colour you can run up "'as won't be made out and answered to by Waller and self.' "'Captain Gills,' said Mr. Toots, "'my mind is greatly relieved. "'I wish to preserve the good opinion of all here. "'I—I—mean well, upon my honour, "'however badly I may show it. "'You know,' said Mr. Toots, "'it's as exactly at Burgess and Co. "'wished to oblige a customer "'with a more extraordinary pair of trousers "'and could not cut out what they had made in their minds.' with this apposite illustration of which he seemed a little proud mr toots gave captain cuttle his blessing and departed the honest captain with his heart's delight in the house and susan tending her was a beaming and a happy man as the days flew by he grew more beaming and more happy every day After some conferences with Susan, for whose wisdom the captain had a profound respect, and whose valiant precipitation of herself on Mrs. McStinger he could never forget, he proposed to Florence that the daughter of the elderly lady who usually sat under the blue umbrella at Leadenhall Market should, for prudential reasons and considerations of privacy, be superseded in the temporal discharge of the household duties by someone who was not unknown to them, and in whom they could safely confide susan being present then named in furtherance of a suggestion she had previously offered to the captain mrs richards florence brightened at the name and susan setting off that very afternoon to the toodle domicile to sound mrs richards returned in triumph the same evening accompanied by the identical rosy-cheeked apple-faced polly whose demonstrations when brought into florence's presence were hardly less affectionate than those of susan nipper herself This piece of generalship accomplished, from which the captain derived uncommon satisfaction, as he did indeed from everything else that was done, whatever it happened to be, Florence had next to prepare Susan for their approaching separation. This was a much more difficult task, as Miss Nipper was of a resolute disposition, and had fully made up her mind that she had come back never to be parted from her old mistress any more as to wages dear miss floy she said you wouldn't hint and wrong me so as to think of naming them for i've put money by and wouldn't sell my love and duty at a time like this even if the savings bank and me were total strangers or the bank were broke to pieces but you've never been without me darling from the time your poor dear mar was took away and though i'm nothing to be boasted of you're used to me and oh my own dear mistress through so many years don't think of going away without me for it mustn't and can't be "'Dear Susan, I am going on a long, long voyage.' "'Well, Miss Floy, and what of that, the more you'll want me. Length of voyages ain't an object in my eyes, thank God,' said the impetuous Susan Nipper. "'But, Susan, I am going with Walter, and I would go with Walter anywhere, everywhere. Walter is poor, and I am very poor, and I must learn now both to help myself and help him.' "'Dear Miss Floy," cried Susan, bursting out afresh and shaking her head violently, "'it's nothing new to you to help yourself and others too, and be the patientest and truest of noble hearts. But let me talk to Mr. Walter Gay and settle it with him, for suffer you to go away across the world alone I cannot and I won't.' "'Alone, Susan,' returned Florence. "'Alone? And Walter taking me with him?' Ah, what a bright, amazed enraptured smile was on her face. He should have seen it. "'I am sure you will not speak to Walter if I ask you not,' she added tenderly. "'And pray don't, dear.' "'Susan sobbed. "'Why not, Miss Floyd?' "'Because,' said Florence, "'I am going to be his wife, to give him up my whole heart, "'and to live with him and die with him. "'He might think, if you said to him what you have said to me, "'that I am afraid of what is before me, "'or that you have some cause to be afraid for me.' "'Why, Susan, dear, I love him.' Miss Nipper was so much affected by the quiet fervour of these words, and the simple, heartfelt, all-pervading earnestness expressed in them, and making the speaker's face more beautiful and pure than ever, that she could only cling to her again crying. Was her little mistress really, really going to be married, and pitying, caressing, and protecting her as she had done before? But the Nipper, though susceptible of womanly weaknesses, was almost as capable of putting constraint upon herself as of attacking the redoubting McStinger. From that time she never returned to the subject, but was always cheerful, active, bustling, and hopeful. She did indeed inform Mr. Toots privately that she was only keeping up for the time, and that when it was all over and Miss Dombey was gone, she might be expected to become a spectacle distressful. And Mr. Toots did also express that it was his case, too, and that they would mingle their tears together, but she never otherwise indulged her private feelings in the presence of Florence or within the precincts of the midshipmen. Limited and plain as Florence's wardrobe was—what a contrast to that prepared for the last marriage in which she had taken part— There was a good deal to do in getting ready, and Susan Nipper worked away at her side, all day, with the concentrated zeal of fifty sempstresses. The wonderful contributions Captain Cuttle would have made to this branch of the outfit, if he had been permitted, as pink parasols, tinted silk stockings, blue shoes, and other articles no less necessary on shipboard, would occupy some space in the recital— He was induced, however, by various fraudulent representations, to limit his contributions to a work-box and dressing-case, of each of which he purchased the very largest specimen that could be got for money. For ten days or a fortnight afterwards, he generally sat during the greater part of the day, gazing at these boxes, divided between extreme admiration of them, and dejected misgivings that they were not gorgeous enough and frequently diving out into the street to purchase some wild article that he deemed necessary to their completeness but his master-stroke was the bearing of them both off suddenly one morning and getting the two words Florence Gay engraved upon a brass heart inlaid over the lid of each after this he smoked four pipes successively in the little parlour by himself and was discovered chuckling at the expiration of as many hours walter was busy and away all day but came there every morning early to see florence and always pass the evening with her florence never left her high rooms but to steal downstairs to wait for him when it was his time to come or sheltered by his proud encircling arm to bear him company to the door again and sometimes peep into the street In the twilight they were always together, O blessed time, O wandering heart at rest, O deep, exhaustless, mighty well of love, in which so much was sunk. The cruel mark was on her bosom yet. It rose against her father with the breath she drew. It lay between her and her lover when he pressed her to his heart. But she forgot it. In the beating of their heart for her, and in the beating of her own for him, all harsher music was unheard all stern unloving hearts forgotten fragile and delicate she was but with a might of love within her that could and did create a world to fly to and to rest in out of his one image How often did the great house and the old days come before her in the twilight time, when she was sheltered by the arm, so proud, so fond, and creeping closer to him, shrunk within it at the recollection! How often, from remembering the night when she went down to that room and met the never-to-be-forgotten look, did she raise her eyes to those that watched her with such loving earnestness, and weep with happiness in such a refuge! the more she clung to it the more the dear dead child was in her thoughts but as of the last time she had seen her father had been when he was sleeping and she kissed his face she always left him so and never in her fancy passed that hour walter dear said florence one evening when it was almost dark do you know what i have been thinking to-day thinking how the time is flying on and how soon we shall be upon the sea sweet florence i don't mean that walter though I think of that, too. I have been thinking what a charge I am to you. A precious sacred charge, dear heart. Why, I think that sometimes. You are laughing, Walter. I know that's much more in your thoughts than mine. But I mean a cost. A cost, my own. In money, dear. All these preparations that Susan and I are so busy with. I have been able to purchase very little for myself.' you were poor before but how much poorer i shall make you walter and how much richer florence florence laughed and shook her head besides said walter long ago before i went to sea, i had a little purse presented to me, dearest which had money in it ah returned florence laughing sorrowfully very little very little walter but you must not think and here she laid her light hand on his shoulder and looked into his face that i regret to be this burden on you no dear love i am glad of it i am happy in it i wouldn't have it otherwise for all the world nor i indeed dear florence ay but walter you can never feel it as i do I am so proud of you. It makes my heart swell with such delight to know that those who speak of you must say you married a poor disowned girl who had taken shelter here, who had no other home, no other friends, who had nothing, nothing. Oh, Walter, if I could have brought you millions, I could never have been so happy for your sake as I am. "'And you, dear Florence, are you nothing?' he returned. "'No, nothing, Walter, nothing but your wife.' The light hand stole about his neck, and the voice came nearer, nearer. "'I am nothing any more that is not you. I have no earthly hope any more that is not you. I have nothing dear to me any more that is not you.' Oh, well might Mr. Toots leave the little company that evening, and twice go out to correct his watch by the royal exchange, and once to keep an appointment with a banker which he suddenly remembered, and once to take a little turn to Aldgate-Pump and back. But before he went upon these expeditions, or indeed before he came and before lights were brought, Walter said, "'Florence, love, the lading of our ship is nearly finished, and probably on the very day of our marriage she will drop down the river.' "'Shall we go away that morning and stay in Kent until we go on board at Gravesend within a week? "'If you please, Walter, I shall be happy anywhere, but—' "'Yes, my life.' "'You know,' said Florence, "'that we shall have no marriage party, "'and nobody will distinguish us by our dress from other people. "'As we leave the same day, will you—' "'Will you take me somewhere that morning, Walter? Early? Before we go to church?' Walter seemed to understand her, as so true a lover so truly loved should, and confirmed his ready promise with a kiss, with more than one, perhaps, or two, or three, or five, or six, and in the grave, peaceful evening, Florence was very happy. Then into the quiet room came Susan Nipper and the candles, shortly afterwards the tea, the captain, the excursive Mr. Toots, who, as above mentioned, was frequently on the move afterwards, and passed but a restless evening. This, however, was not his habit, for he generally got on very well, by dint of playing at cribbage with the captain under the advice and guidance of Miss Nipper, and distracting his mind with the calculations incidental to the game, which he found to be a very effectual means of utterly confounding himself. The captain's visage, on these occasions, presented one of the finest examples of combination and succession of expression ever observed his instinctive delicacy and his chivalrous feeling towards florence taught him that it was not a time for any boisterous jollity or violent display of satisfaction floating reminiscences of lovely peg on the other hand were constantly struggling for a vent and urging the captain to commit himself by some irreparable demonstration Anon, his admiration of Florence and Walter, well matched truly and full of grace and interest in their youth and love and good looks as they sat apart, would take such complete possession of him, that he would lay down his cards and beam upon them, dabbing his head all over with his pocket-handkerchief, until warned perhaps, by the sudden rushing forth of Mr. Toots, that he had unconsciously been very instrumental, indeed, in making that gentleman miserable. This reflection would make the captain profoundly melancholy until the return of Mr. Toots, when he would fall to his cards again, with many side winks and nods and polite waves of his hook at Miss Nipper, importing that he wasn't going to do so any more. The state that ensued on this was perhaps his best for then endeavouring to discharge all expression from his face— He would sit staring round the room, with all the expressions conveyed into it at once, and each wrestling with the other. Delighted admiration of Florence and Walter always overthrew the rest, and remained victorious and undisguised, unless Mr. Toots made another rush into the air, and then the captain would sit like a remorseful culprit until he came back again, occasionally calling upon himself in a low reproachful voice to, "'Stand by!' or growling some remonstrance to Edward Cuttle, my lad, on the want of caution observable in his behaviour. One of Mr. Toots' hardest trials, however, was of his own seeking. On the approach of the Sunday which was to witness the last of those askings in church of which the captain had spoken, Mr. Toots thus stated his feelings to Susan Nipper. "'Susan,' said Mr. Toots, "'I am drawn towards the building.' the words which cut me off from Miss Dombey for ever, will strike upon my ears like a knell, you know. But upon my word and honour I feel that I must hear them. Therefore, said Mr. Toots, will you accompany me to-morrow to the sacred edifice?' Miss Nipper expressed her readiness to do so, if that would be any satisfaction to Mr. Toots, but besought him to abandon his idea of going. "'Susan,' returned Mr. Toots, with much solemnity, Before my whiskers began to be observed by anybody but myself, I adored Miss Dombey. While yet a victim to the thraldom of Blimber, I adored Miss Dombey. When I could no longer be kept out of my property in a legal point of view, and—and accordingly came into it, I adored Miss Dombey. The bands which consign her to Lieutenant Walters, and me to— "'To gloom, you know,' said Mr. Toots, after hesitating for a strong expression, "'may be dreadful, will be dreadful, but I feel that I should wish to hear them spoken. I feel that I should wish to know that the ground was certainly cut from under me, and that I hadn't a hope to cherish, or a—or a leg, in short, to—to go upon.' Susan Nipper could only commiserate Mr. Toots' unfortunate condition, and agree under these circumstances to accompany him, which she did next morning. The church Walter had chosen for the purpose was a mouldy old church, in a yard, hemmed in by a labyrinth of back streets and courts, with a little burying-ground round it, and itself buried in a kind of vault, formed by the neighbouring houses and paved with echoing stones. It was a great dim, shabby pile, with high old oaken pews, among which about a score of people lost themselves every Sunday while the clergyman's voice drowsily resounded through the emptiness, and the organ rumbled and rolled as if the church had got the colic for want of a congregation to keep the wind and damp out. But so far was this city church from languishing for the company of other churches that spires were clustered round it as the masts of shipping cluster on the river. It would have been hard to count them from its steeple-top there were so many. In almost every yard and blind place near, there was a church. The confusion of bells when Susan and Mr. Toots betook themselves towards it on the Sunday morning was deafening. There were twenty churches close together clamouring for people to come in. The two stray sheep in question were penned by a beetle in a commodious pew, and being early sat for some time counting the congregation, listening to the disappointed bell high up in the tower— or looking at a shabby little old man in the porch behind the screen, who was ringing the same like a bull in cock-robin with his foot in a stirrup. Mr. Toots, after a lengthened survey of the large books on the reading-desk, whispered Miss Nipper that he wondered where the bands were kept, but that young lady merely shook her head and frowned, repelling for the time all approaches of a temporal nature. Mr. Toots, however, appearing unable to keep his thoughts from the bands, was evidently looking out for them during the whole preliminary portion of the service. As the time for reading them approached, the poor young gentleman manifested great anxiety and trepidation, which was not diminished by the unexpected apparition of the captain in the front row of the gallery. When the clerk handed up a list to the clergyman, Mr. Toots, being then seated, held on by the seat of the pew, but when the names of walter gay and florence dombey were read aloud as being in the third and last stage of that association He was so entirely conquered by his feelings as to rush from the church without his hat, followed by the beadle and pew-opener, and two gentlemen of the medical profession, who happened to be present, of whom the first-named presently returned for that article, informing Miss Nipper in a whisper that she was not to make herself uneasy about the gentleman, as the gentleman said his indisposition was of no consequence. Miss Nipper— feeling that the eyes of the integral portion of Europe which lost itself weakly among the high-backed pews were upon her, would have been sufficiently embarrassed by this incident, though it had terminated her the more so, as the captain in the front row of the gallery was in a state of unmitigated consciousness which could hardly fail to express to the congregation that he had some mysterious connection with it. But the extreme restlessness of Mr. Toots painfully increased and protracted the delicacy of her situation that young gentleman, incapable in his state of mind of remaining alone in the churchyard, a prey to solitary meditation, and also desirous no doubt of testifying his respect for the officers he had in some measure interrupted, suddenly returned, not coming back to the pew, but stationing himself on a free seat in the aisle between two elderly females, who were in the habit of receiving their portion of a weekly dole of bread, then set forth on a shelf in the porch in this conjunction mr toots remained greatly disturbing the congregation who felt it impossible to avoid looking at him until his feelings overcame him again when he departed silently and suddenly not venturing to trust himself in the church any more and yet wishing to have some social participation in what was going on there mr toots was after this seen from time to time looking in with a lorn aspect at one or other of the windows and as there were several windows accessible to him from without and as his restlessness was very great it not only became difficult to conceive at which window he would appear next but likewise became necessary as it were for the whole congregation to speculate upon the chances of the different windows during the comparative leisure afforded them by the sermon mr toots movements in the churchyard were so eccentric that he seemed generally to defeat all calculation and to appear like the conjurer's figure where he was least expected and the effect of these mysterious presentations was much increased by its being difficult to him to see in and easy to everybody else to see out which occasioned his remaining every time longer than might have been expected with his face close to the glass until he all at once became aware that all eyes were upon him, and vanished.' these proceedings on the part of mr toots and the strong individual consciousness of them that was exhibited by the captain rendered miss nipper's position so responsible a one that she was mightily relieved by the conclusion of the service and was hardly so affable to mr toots as usual when he informed her and the captain on the way back that now he was sure he had no hope you know he felt more comfortable at least not exactly more comfortable But more comfortably, and completely miserable. Swiftly now, indeed, the time flew by until it was the evening before the day appointed for the marriage. They were all assembled in the upper room at the midshipman's, and had no fear of interruption, for there were no lodgers in the house now, and the midshipman had it all to himself. They were grave and quiet in the prospect of to-morrow, but moderately cheerful, too. Florence, with Walter close beside her, was finishing a little piece of work intended as a parting gift to the captain. The captain was playing cribbage with Mr. Toots. Mr. Toots was taking counsel as to his hand of Susan Nipper. Miss Nipper was giving it, with all due secrecy and circumspection. Diogenes was listening, and occasionally breaking out into a gruff, half-smothered fragment of a bark, of which he afterwards seemed half-ashamed, as if he doubted having any reason for it steady steady said the captain to diogenes what's amiss with you you don't seem easy in your mind to-day my boy diogenes wagged his tail but pricked up his ears immediately afterwards and gave utterance to another fragment of a bark for which he apologized to the captain by again wagging his tail it's my opinion di said the captain looking thoughtfully at his cards and stroking his chin with his hook as you have your doubts of mrs richards but if you're the animal i take you to be you'll think better of that for her looks is her commission now brother to mr toots if so be as you're ready heave ahead the captain spoke with all composure and attention to the game but suddenly his cards dropped out of his hand his mouth and eyes opened wide his legs drew themselves up and stuck out in front of his chair as he sat staring at the door with blank amazement looking round upon the company and seeing that none of them observed him or the cause of his astonishment the captain recovered himself with a great gasp struck the table a tremendous blow cried in stentorian roar sol gills ahoy and tumbled into the arms of a weather-beaten pea-coat that had come with polly into the room in another moment walter was in the arms of the weather-beaten pea-coat in another moment, Florence was in the arms of the weather-beaten pea In another moment, Captain Cuttle had embraced Mrs. Richards and Miss Nipper, and was violently shaking hands with Mr. Toots, exclaiming as he waved his hook above his head, "Horror, my lad, Horror!" To which Mr. Toots, wholly at a loss to account for these proceedings, replied with great politeness, "'Certainly, Captain Gills. Whatever you think proper.' The weather-beaten peacoat and a no less weather-beaten cap and comforter belonging to it, turned from the captain and from Florence back to Walter, and sounds came from the weather-beaten peacoat, cap, and comforter as of an old man sobbing underneath them, while the shaggy sleeves clasped Walter tight. During this pause there was an universal silence, and the captain polished his nose with great diligence. But when the peacoat, cap, and comforter lifted themselves up again, florence gently moved towards them and she and walter taking them off disclosed the old instrument maker a little thinner and more careworn than of old in his old welsh wig and his old coffee-coloured coat and basket buttons with his old infallible chronometer ticking away in his pocket chock full of science said the radiant captain as ever he was sol gills sol gills what have you been up to for this many a long day my old boy "'I'm half-blind, Ned,' said the old man, "'and almost deaf and dumb with joy.' "'His weary voice,' said the captain, "'looking round with an exultation to which even his face could hardly render justice, "'his weary voice as chock of science as ever it was. Sol gills, lay to, my lad, upon your own wines and fig-trees "'like a taut old patriarch as you are, "'and overhaul them their adventures a-yorn in your own familiar voice.' "'Tis the voice,' said the captain impressively, in announcing a quotation with his hook, "'of the sluggard I heard him complain. You have woke me too soon. I must slumber again. Scatter his enemies, and make them fall!' The captain sat down with the air of a man who had happily expressed the feeling of everybody present, and immediately rose again to present Mr. Toots, who was much disconcerted by the arrival of anybody, appearing to prefer a claim to the name of Gills. "'Although,' stammered Mr. Toots, "'I had not the pleasure of your acquaintance, sir, before you you were—you were—lost to sight to memory, dear,' suggested the captain, in a low voice. "'Exactly so, Captain Gills,' assented Mr. Toots. "'Although I had not the pleasure of your acquaintance, Mr—Mr. Sauls,' said Toots, hitting on that name in the inspiration of a bright idea, "'before that happened, I have the greatest pleasure to assure you in—you know, in knowing you. I hope,' said Mr. Toots, "'that you're as well as can be expected.' with these courteous words mr toots sat down blushing and chuckling the old instrument-maker seated in a corner between walter and florence and nodding at polly who was looking on all smiles and delight answered the captain thus ned cuttle my dear boy although i have heard something of the changes of events here from my pleasant friend there what a pleasant face she has to be sure to welcome a wanderer home said the old man breaking off and rubbing his hands in the old dreamy way hear him cried the captain gravely tis woman seduces all mankind for which aside to mr toots you'll overhaul your adam and eve brother i shall make a point of doing so captain gills said mr toots although i have heard something of the changes of events from her resumed the instrument-maker, taking his old spectacles from his pocket and putting them on his forehead in his old manner. They are so great and unexpected, and I am so overpowered by the sight of my dear boy and by the—glancing at the downcast eyes of Florence and not attempting to finish the sentence— that I—I I can't say much to-night. But, my dear Ned Cuttle, why didn't you write? the astonishment depicted in the captain's features positively frightened mr toots whose eyes were quite fixed by it so that he could not have withdrawn them from his face right echoed the captain right ay said the old man either to Barbados or jamaico or Demerara, that was what i asked what you asked sol gills repeated the captain ay said the old man don't you know ned sure you have not forgotten Every time I wrote to you, the Captain took off his glazed hat, hung it on his hook, and smoothing his hair from behind with his hand, sat gazing at the group around him, a perfect image of wondering resignation. You don't appear to understand me, Ned observed old Sol Sol Gills returned the captain after staring at him and the rest for a long time without speaking. I'm gone about in adrift. Pay out a word or two respecting them adventures, will you? Can't I bring up no hows, no hows? Said the captain, ruminating and staring all around. You know, Ned, said Saul Gills, why I left here. Did you open my packet, Ned? Why, ay, ay, said the captain. To be sure, I opened the packet, and read it, said the old man, and read it, answered the captain, eyeing him attentively and proceeding to quote it from memory my dear ned cuttle when i left home in the west indies in forlorn search of intelligence of my dear there he sits there's waller said the captain as if he were relieved by getting hold of anything that was real and indisputable well ned now attend a moment said the old man when i wrote first that was from Barbados, i said that though you would receive that letter long before the year was out I should be glad if you would open the packet as it explained the reason of my going away. Very good, Ned. When I wrote the second, third, and perhaps the fourth times, that was from Jamaica. I said I was in just the same state, couldn't rest, and couldn't come away from that part of the world without knowing that my boy was lost or saved. When I wrote next, that, I think, was from Demerara, wasn't it? "'That he thinks was from Demerara, warn't it?' said the captain, looking hopelessly round. "'I said—' proceeded old Saul, that still there was no certain information got yet, that I found many captains and others in that part of the world who had known me for years, and who assisted me with a passage here and there for whom I was able now and then to do a little in return in my own craft, that everybody was sorry for me and seemed to take a sort of interest in my wanderings, and that I began to think it would be my fate to cruise about in search of tidings of my boy until I died.' "'Begun to think as how he was a scientific flying Dutchman,' said the captain, as before and with great seriousness. "'But when the news came one day, Ned—that was to Barbados, after I got back there—that a China trader homeward bound had been spoke, and that had my boy aboard, then, Ned, I took passage in the next ship and came home. Arrived at home to-night to find it true, thank God,' said the old man devoutly." the captain after bowing his head with great reverence stared all round the circle beginning with mr toots and ending with the instrument-maker then gravely said sol gills the observation as i'm a-going to make is calculated to blow every stitch of sail as you can carry clean after the bell ropes and bring you on your beam ends with a lurch not one of them letters was ever delivered to ed'ard cuttle not one of them letters repeated the captain to make his declaration the more solemn and impressive was ever delivered unto ed'ard cuttle mariner of england as lives at home at ease and doth improve each shining hour and posted by my own hand and directed by my own hand number nine brig place exclaimed old sol The colour all went out of the captain's face, and all came back again in a glow. "'What do you mean, Saul Gills, my friend, by number 9 Brig place?' inquired the captain. "'Mean? Your lodgings, Ned,' returned the old man. "'Mrs. What's-her-name? I shall forget my own name next, but I'm behind the present time. I always was, you recollect, and very much confused. Mrs. Saul Gills,' said the captain, as if he were putting the most improbable case in the world.' "'It ain't the name of Stinger as you're a-trying to remember.' "'Of course it is,' exclaimed the instrument-maker. "'To be sure, Ned, Mrs. Stinger, Captain Cuttle, whose eyes were now as wide open as they would be, and the knobs upon whose face were perfectly luminous, gave a long, shrill whistle of a most melancholy sound, and stood gazing at everybody in a state of speechlessness.' overhaul that there again sol gild will you be so kind he said at last all these letters returned uncle sol beating time with the forefinger of his right hand upon the palm of his left with a steadiness and distinctness that might have done humour even to the infallible chronometer in his pocket i posted with my own hand and directed with my own hand to captain cuttle at mrs macstinger's number no. nine brig place the captain took his glazed hat off his hook looked into it, put it on, and sat down. "'Why, friends all,' said the captain, staring round in the last state of discomfiture, "'I cut and run from there.' "'And no one knew where you were going, Captain Cuttle?' cried Walter hastily. "'Bless your heart, Waller," said the captain, shaking his head. "'She'd never had allowed of my coming to take charge of this here property. "'Nothing could be done but cut and run. "'Lord love you, Walter,' said the captain. "'You've only seen her in a calm.' but see her when her angry passions rise and make a note on i'd give it her remarked the nipper softly would you do you think my dear returned the captain with feeble admiration well my dear it does you credit but there ain't no wild animal i wouldn't sooner face myself i only got my chest away by means of a friend as nobody's a match for it was no good sending any letter there she wouldn't take in any letter bless you said the captain under them circumstances "'Why, it could hardly make it worth a man's while to be the postman.' "'Then it's pretty clear, Captain Cuttle, that all of us, and you and Uncle Saul especially,' said Walter, "'may think Mrs. McStinger for no small anxiety.' The general obligation in this wise to the determined relict of the late Mr. McStinger was so apparent that the captain did not contest the point, but being in some measure ashamed of his position, though nobody dwelt upon the subject, and Walter especially avoiding it, remembering the last conversation he and the captain had held together respecting it he remained under a cloud for nearly five minutes an extraordinary period for him when that sun his face broke out once more shining on all beholders with extraordinary brilliancy and he fell into a fit of shaking hands with everybody over and over again at an early hour But not before Uncle Saul and Walter had questioned each other at some length about their voyages and dangers, they all, except Walter, vacated Florence's room and went down to the parlour. Here they were soon afterwards joined by Walter, who told them Florence was a little sorrowful and heavy hearted, and had gone to bed. Though they could not have disturbed her with their voices down there, they all spoke in a whisper after this, and each in his different way felt very lovingly and gently towards Walter's fair young bride, and a long explanation there was of everything relating to her, for the satisfaction of Uncle Saul, and very sensible Mr. Toots was of the delicacy with which Walter made his name and services important, and his presence necessary to their little council. "'Mr. Toots,' said Walter, on parting with them at the house-door, "'we shall see each other to-morrow morning?' "'Lieutenant Walters,' returned Mr. Toots, grasping his hand fervently, "'I shall certainly be present. This is the last night we shall meet for a long time.' "'The last night we may ever meet,' said Walter. "'Such a noble heart as yours must feel, I think, when another heart is bound to it. I hope you know that I am very grateful to you.' "'Walters,' replied Mr. Toots, quite touched, "'I should be glad to feel that you had reason to be so.' "'Florence,' said Walter, on this last night of her bearing her own name, has made me promise—it was only just now, when you left us together—that I would tell you, with her dear love—Mr. Toots laid his hand upon the doorpost and his eyes upon his hand—with her dear love, said Walter, that she can never have a friend whom she will value above you, that the recollection of your true consideration for her always can never be forgotten by her, that she remembers you in her prayers to-night, and hopes that you will think of her when she is far away— Shall I say anything for you?' "'Say, Walter,' replied Mr. Toots, indistinctly, "'that I shall think of her every day, but never without feeling happy to know that she is married to the man she loves and who loves her. Say, if you please, that I am sure her husband deserves her, even her, and that I am glad of her choice.' Mr. Toots got more distinct as he came to these last words, and, raising his eyes from the door-post, said them stoutly, He then shook Walter's hand again, with a fervour that Walter was not slow to return, and started homeward. Mr. Toots was accompanied by the Chicken, whom he had of late brought with him every evening, and left in the shop with an idea that unforeseen circumstances might arise from without, in which the prowess of that distinguished character would be of service to the midshipman. The Chicken did not appear to be in a particularly good humour on this occasion, Either the gas-lamps were treacherous, or he cocked his eye in a hideous manner, and likewise distorted his nose, when Mr. Toots, crossing the road, looked back over his shoulder at the room where Florence slept. On the road home he was more demonstrative of aggressive intentions against the other foot-passengers than comported with a professor of the peaceful art of self-defence. Arrived at home, instead of leaving Mr. Toots in his apartments, when he had escorted him thither, he remained before him weighing his white hat in both hands by the brim and twitching his head and nose both of which had been many times broken and but indifferently repaired with an air of decided disrespect his patron being much engaged with his own thoughts did not observe this for some time nor indeed until the chicken determined not to be overlooked had made divers clicking sounds with his tongue and teeth to attract attention now master said the chicken doggedly when he at length caught mr toots's eye i want to know whether this here gammon is to finish it or whether you're a-going in to win chicken returned mr toots explain yourself why then here's all about it master said the chicken i ain't a cove to chuck a word away here's what it is are any on em to be doubled up when the chicken put this question he dropped his hat made a dodge and feint with his left hand hit a supposed enemy a violent blow with his right, shook his head smartly, and recovered himself. "'Come, master,' said the chicken. "'Is it to be gammon or pluck? Which?' "'Chicken,' returned Mr. Toots. "'Your expressions are coarse, and your meaning is obscure.' "'Why, then, I tell you what, master,' said the chicken. "'This is where it is. It's mean.' "'What is mean, chicken?' asked Mr. Toots. "'It is,' said the chicken, with a frightful corrugation of his broken nose. "'There, now, master, what?' "'When you could go and blow on this here master the stiffen—by which depreciatory appellation it has been supposed that the game one intended to signify Mr. Dombey—and when you could knock the winner and all the kit of him dead out o' wind and time, are you going to give in—to give in?' said the Chicken, with contemptuous emphasis. "'Why, it's mean.' "'Chicken,' said Mr. Toot severely. "'You're a perfect vulture. "'Your sentiments are atrocious.' "'My sentiments is game and fancy, master,' returned the chicken. "'That's what my sentiments is. "'I can't bear a meanness. "'I'm afore the public. "'I'm to be haired on at the bar of the little elephant, "'and no governor of mine mustn't go and do what's mean. "'Why, it's mean,' said the chicken, with increased expression. "'That's what it is. "'It's mean!' "'Chicken,' said Mr. Toots, "'you disgust me.' "'Master,' returned the chicken, putting on his hat, "'there's a pair on us, then.' "'Come, here's an offer. You've spoke to me more than once or twice about the public line. Never mind. Give me a five note to morrow and let me go.' "'Chicken,' returned Mr. Toots, "'after the odious sentiments you have expressed, I shall be glad to part on such terms.' "'Done, then,' said the Chicken. "'It's a bargain. This here conduct of yourn won't suit my book, master. Why, it's mean,' said the Chicken, who seemed equally unable to get beyond that point, and to stop short of it. "'That's where it is. It's mean.' So Mr. Toots and the Chicken agreed to part on this incompatibility of moral perception, and Mr. Toots, lying down to sleep, dreamed happily of Florence, who had thought of him as her friend upon the last night of her maiden life, and who had sent him her dear love. End of chapter 56